I'm glad you all slid your way here. I really am. I know I had to go out and chip a bunch of ice this morning. I bet many of you did too. And uh, nevertheless, you made the commitment to be here and to worship God with your brothers and sisters. And it's a great thing to be with the family of God and with his people, you know. I got to tell you, I missed you all. I hope you missed me, but I missed you either way. And I missed being here and missed being with you and getting to uh, just to share life with you and to share God's word with you and be together and drink coffee in our new coffee shop, which I think we have a name for it now. I think we're going to call that Living Waters over there. So um, anyway, it's exciting, isn't it? It's cold and snowy outside, but it's warm in here. God has provided us with a, a great place to meet and to be together and to see each other and to give each other hugs and handshakes and maybe even uh, the, uh, the kiss of peace once in a while if you're married. Um, uh, it's okay to do that at church. It's, uh, it's allowed, right? Um, and, and just to celebrate and enjoy each other, right? And so I'm glad to be back with you. Uh, we had a great time visiting our families uh, in Indiana, uh, but we're also glad to be back here and settled into normal life again. The kids back to school and me uh, back to work and Karen back to work and um, and to be able to worship with you all again and pray together and sing together. And now we're going to study together as we look at God's Word. Uh, this morning we're going to look, we're going to start a long journey. It's going to take us a number of months. Uh, we'll probably finish up sometime around the time school starts back up again in the fall, actually, with uh, 1 Corinthians. There's a lot here in 1 Corinthians that's really exciting. Uh, includes It addresses things like life in the church, life in our homes, life as a citizen in the wider culture. It addresses all kinds of topics, from spiritual gifts to lawsuits, from sexuality to factions and divisions in the church, to church discipline, to the resurrection, to eternal life, uh, to eternal judgment. Uh, it talks about uh, all kinds of areas, the, of bringing all these areas in submission to God as we obey and, and understand better how the gospel relates to life and how if we really understand the gospel and we try to live out the implications of it, it totally transforms every area of not only our thinking but also our relationships and our behavior and our use of our giftedness and our um, relationships with people in the culture at large. It's a great book and I am fired up to teach it. I really am. It is really going to be fun, and at least for me. I hope it's fun for you, but either way, I'm going to have a great time because this is a great book, and this is great stuff that's in here. And herein, we have a tremendous opportunity to experience spiritual growth. I, I probably don't bring this up enough, but how many of you are here on a weekly basis to experience spiritual growth? Hopefully, everybody has their hand up. That's why we are here, right? We don't come here because we're nice religious people and we don't sleep in on Sunday morning, right? This is not a religious club that we have joined. 
We are here to experience transformation as the people of God who are living out the gospel in their life, right? And we have this tremendous opportunity because God has given us his word to experience spiritual growth. And I have this prayer that I have been praying as I've been studying this book that we will all this year experience spiritual growth like we have never experienced. And I think that as we study through this book and as we obey what it says to us, that we're going to have that prayer answered in the affirmative. That we as a church are going to grow spiritually and we as individuals are going to grow spiritually. And I can't wait to see what God does. Because it's going to be exciting and it's going to be fun. And I think by the end of this, I think there will be a number of you who will be able to testify, God answered your prayer. I hope that you do, in fact. I hope that you give the Lord credit for what he does in your life. Uh, because this is going to be exciting and going to be a lot of fun. Before we set the plow too deep, though, I want to back up before we kind of take a run at 1 Corinthians, because there's a lot here. But there's some things we need to understand about Corinth and about the church at Corinth and about uh, the setting in which Paul is writing, because... Um, there, you know, every letter in the New Testament is written into a particular context and into a particular culture and to people in a particular place whose experiences and whose culture plays into how they, uh, how they respond to the gospel, but also what kind of issues they deal with as they encounter Christ through the scriptures and through the gospel, Right? Uh, how many of you think that the culture here, as an example, is different than in Manhattan? A little bit different, right? A little bit, right? And it's even different here than it is in Chicago, and we're in the same state, right? Be honest. How many of you would like to saw off the top of the state from about 39 east and 80 north, right? A lot of you, right? Make that a 51st state, Chicagoland, right? Right? And leave the rest of us downstate alone. Right? Well, the same thing is true as you read your New Testament. They're, that the people in Galatia are different kind. They're not just different individuals. They're a different kind of people than the people in Corinth. And so if you want to understand Corinthians in, in, in all of that Paul is writing to those people, you need to understand a little bit of their history and their culture. So I want to give you that uh, here just this morning, we'll, we'll touch on various aspects of culture and history and so forth as we move along, but, but I want to give you a big introduction to that today, and then we'll be able to just assume a lot of that as we go forward. Uh, Corinth was an ancient city, even in Paul's day, it was an ancient city. In fact, there's evidence of human habitation there back as far as past 6,000 B.C., it was an ancient city. By Paul's, by Paul's day, it was already 6,000 years old. There had been people living there. Uh, it's likely it was one of the very earliest sites for human habitation in ancient Greece. And a big part of that is its location. Uh, guys in the back, if you could put that map up so we can show everybody where Corinth is. Uh, it's, uh, it's located... Let me see if I can get my map here. 
And could one of you guys bring me the laser pointer so I can actually identify some things here? That would be great. If I'd been on the ball, I'd have had that already, but I didn't. Let's see here. Let's see here. There we go. Th this is Corinth right here, okay? And this right here, this area is called the Saronic Gulf, and this is the Corinthian Gulf. And over here is Italy, okay? And over here, that's... Uh, in, in, the Roman, in Roman times, it was called Asia. You would call it today Turkey. Okay? That was the Asian, but that's part of the Asian landmass right here. And so Corinth is located on this isthmus. This is the, uh, this is the Peloponnesian Peninsula, if you've ever studied the Peloponnesian War. Okay, you got Athens on this side, Sparta down here, and they fought a, a war both on land and sea across the Peloponnese right here. Okay? And Corinth had two harbors. It had one on this side, on the Corinthian Gulf, and over here at Centuria, they had another one. Okay, and it's about four miles across that isthmus. And they had a rock-cut track that was built across that whole isthmus, and you could transport goods all the way across there. And you could even transport, it was built rugged enough that you could even transport ships across the isthmus. And you could go from Asia over to Corinth, here at Centuria, take your ship all the way across, and then sail very calm water all the way to Italy. Okay? And it was a strategic location. Uh, it was a major center for trade, and so it became wealthy and powerful. Uh, after Rome began to rise and it began to dominate the Mediterranean world, uh, Corinth led what was called the Achaean League, okay? Uh, oh, oh, hold on. Ooh, go back. Uh, forward. Uh, let's see here. There we go. All right. This, th this area of Greece was called Achaea, okay? And it was the city, it was the leading city of the Achaean League. Of all the Greek city-states that banded together and they were going to oppose Rome. How many of you have seen the movie The 300? Or know, or know what I'm talking about, okay? Well, all these Greek city-states were independent nations. And back when the Persian Empire was rising, they all formed together. And they all, uh, they all um, banded together to fight off the Persians. Uh, that movie is about an earlier invasion of those Persians. And how they all banded together, well, they, they weren't all together yet, and so 300 Spartans and 700 Thespians, citizens of Thebes, went down to uh, the hot gates, Thermopylae, and fought off, they say, a million Persians for three days. Killed to the last man, right? And there's this great tradition in Greece of all, all of us are, have our independent countries, but we're going to all band together when the empires rise and try to take us over because they were fiercely independent people. But the folks who were able to fight off the Persians were no match for the Roman legions. And in, let's see, 146 B.C., the Roman legions marched on Corinth and they flattened it. They flattened it completely. They leveled the place. They left a few of the buildings and better-looking temples standing, but they conquered the city, 
they slaughtered all of the men, and all of the women and children were sold into slavery. And then the city lay vacant for 102 years until Julius Caesar was emperor. And in 44 BC, he reestablished a Roman city on top of the ancient Greek place. And he established a Roman colony there. And, and the, the idea was that if you would move to this Roman colony, you would get Roman citizenship, which is a valuable commodity. And this was a way of dealing with some of the surplus or excess or cast-off population from the city of Rome itself. Because Rome had a lot of problems, and they, one of the ways they tried to deal with them was by shipping people out of there and putting them somewhere else. And so they took a lot of retired Roman soldiers, and they shipped them to these colonies. When you would do your service, you could retire after a certain number of years in the legions, and, but you needed some place to live. Well, a lot of guys wanted to live in Rome, but uh, no, there's too many of you already. We don't want you banded together and overthrowing the government, as happened later. Uh, so they would ship them off to these colonies. And Corinth was one of these colonies. There was also a significant number of Jews that got run out of Rome and established themselves in Corinth. The, a, big, a big chunk of the population of Corinth by Paul's day was what were called freedmen, people who were still, in, a, in some sense, bound to their previous master, but they were no longer slaves. And so it, this became just a commercial, enterprising place where you could rise relatively quickly in society because there was no aristocracy that was native to this place because everybody had been imported from somewhere else. And the idea was is that the way that you rose in society, because you've got all this trade coming both north and south across Greece, across the isthmus there, everybody's got to go through Corinth. They're traveling north or south across, uh, from, uh, from Greece proper down into the Peloponnese. Or if you're going east to west, you've got to go through Corinth. It's the most convenient route because this, this area right here, this cape around the Peloponnese, is very treacherous at certain times of the year to be on a boat there. And so the most efficient way was to go across the isthmus. And all that traffic and all that trade made Corinth incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful. And its wealth relative to other cities, in fact, is hard to overstate. It became just this lavish, ostentatious place. Uh, it sprang up, uh, you know, to give you a modern comparison, it sprang up from nothing to lavish just overnight. It was like Las Vegas of its day in more ways than one. And it became just, it was like, woof, all of a sudden there was stuff, okay? And, and like, uh, like Vegas, it was a center for the worship of a lot of idols, uh, from the cult of the emperor to the goddess of love and sex, Aphrodite, whose temple employed literally hundreds of sacred prostitutes that you could go and visit for worship services, that was how it was believed and understood to be. Uh, they also worshipped a lot of the Olympian gods and their Roman equivalents. Uh, there were 
also all, an incredible number of local deities and household gods, and the average person would have honored many of them uh, in all kinds of ways. They also, as the city of Corinth was also host every four years to what was called the Isthmian Games. It's the forerunner to our modern-day Olympics. And this, this, these games at Corinth went back generations, I mean literally hundreds of years prior to the founding of the city. And after it was leveled by the Romans and then rebuilt, one of the first things the Romans did after they reestablished the city was also reestablish the games. And these were a big enough deal that in, during Greek times, wars were suspended when the games were on so that everybody could go watch. Now, try to imagine that. You know, uh, tomorrow, uh, you know today we fight, tomorrow we, put up the, we sheath the uh, swords and put up the spears because we've got to go watch the games, right? And then when they're over, we'll go back and stand on the battlefield and fight again. But seriously, they really did that. And these things are the forerunners of our modern-day Olympics. And they were really important. Uh, in fact, they were so prestigious that one of the Roman emperors, the emperor Nero, decided he would go and participate as an athlete. Not surprisingly, he won every competition he was in. Uh, and, and, and this was a city that was incredibly commercial. Everything was for sale. Everything. And no way of making money. It's a pagan culture, and so no way of making money is considered off limits, including religion. And so Corinth's values were those of trade and of business and of entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial spirit. Sound like anywhere else you know? Uh, in the social realm, what was highly valued was promoting your public status, your own honor, and securing your own power. And so David Garland, a commentator on this, biblical scholar, he says, to use terms from American culture, Corinth was a place where schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back, and driving rivals' names through the mud all describe what was required to attain success in this society. Again, sound like anywhere else we might know. Uh, possessing wealth cleared a path for social climbing because it enabled you to buy friends and clients through extravagant spending and win the esteem accorded benefactors. I've got to be honest with you. As I read about ancient Corinth, I'm like, man, the parallels to the United States of America are amazing. Because just like, just like our country, we were founded by the outcasts of the world's leading empire at the time just like Corinth it was a city without a native aristocracy just like ours but with a upper class that loved to flaunt its wealth it was a place where it didn't so much matter how you rose to prominence as that you made it happen do we have anybody in our culture that you go how is that person famous and wealthy Yes, okay, I won't name all of them, but there are a lot of people that you go, if you really think about how that person got famous, it's kind of seedy, right? And yet, that was the way it was also in ancient Corinth. Uh, it was a city where sex was worshipped, just like our culture does. 
And by the way, you know, they had a statue and prostitutes that worked at her temple. And, and worship was very official and institutionalized. But it's institutionalized in our culture, too. It's just we just don't go to the temple, right? Or at least not that kind of temple. And if you don't think that we worship that in this culture, go to Kroger and read the cover stories on the magazine. Go browse through the book selection. Don't read any of it, but just look at some of the stuff that's on sale at Kroger, of all places. Or go to a college campus or a local bar. Or for that matter, check the internet history on the average computer, or maybe even yours. Sex was worship. And Aphrodite's temple looks like a Sunday school picnic compared to a lot of what goes on in our culture, right? Uh, it was in that culture that Paul founds the Corinthian church. Uh, he founds it probably February, March of uh, 50 A.D. He stayed 18 months. It was, a, it was a center for trade across the entire Mediterranean. And, and you could get the gospel from here all the way into here and, west and east. You could get it off to Rome. You could get it north into Europe. You could, you could propagate the gospel from there easily. And so it was a strategic location. It was why Paul went there. And he stayed there for 18 months until Gallio became the proconsul, which was the local Roman ruler. And when he became the proconsul, Paul had to leave because the environment for the gospel got a little hard to deal with. And so he went from there to Jerusalem. I actually went to Ephesus in late 51, then went to Jerusalem, and then went back to visit the churches in Galatia before reestablishing a base in Ephesus where he wrote First and Second Corinthians. First and Second Corinthians, the first First Corinthians is written about two to three years after Paul left. While he's in Ephesus, on his second trip back to Ephesus, he spends about three years there. Uh, and these letters that you will not be surprised to learn are mostly written to address issues related to bringing Corinthian culture into the church. That always happens, by the way. Because people get saved out of a particular culture, right? And then as they are progressing in their sanctification, one of the things they have to do is deal with the hangovers of their culture being brought into the church body and the church life. Uh, one of the things that was a, a big issue in the Corinthian church was the bringing of this prestige and honor culture into the church. Because it was a culture based on the idea of the big man. That you would rise and you would become kind of the big guy, you know, the big important fellow. And, and the, your importance and social status was based on how many followers you could get. Well, you bring that into the church, consciously or subconsciously, and what you get is all these factions within the church body. Well, I follow this guy. I follow that guy. Well, I follow this guy, right? And all of a sudden, you've got either splits or a church that's teetering right on the edge of several of them. 
because everybody's dividing up into their little groups, right? You guys can, can take the map down and, and turn the lights uh, up again. Um, um, managed to pour my water out. That's good. That's really good. All right. That's fantastic. All right. You know what? You've got to have a level of humility to stand up here. And sometimes for very good reason. Um, all right, it was a mess. The church there was a mess. Uh, communion celebrations became a mess because rich people were wanting to flaunt their wealth as they were used to doing. And so they got drunk at communion. And meanwhile, the poor people had nothing to eat and went hungry. Uh this idea of trying to rise and establish the pecking order in society got imported into the church. And so spiritual gifts that were particularly spectacular ones like tongues got co-opted as a way of measuring where everybody lay in the pecking order. And immorality was widespread in the surrounding culture and so it became absolutely overwhelming in the church. And all of these things became issues and so Paul they wrote a letter to Paul and asked him to help them sort this stuff out and so he wrote them back a letter and so you see all the way as you read through first Corinthians now concerning the matters you wrote about now let me address another issue that you guys wrote about now here are these things that you need to deal with now here at Chile Bible we don't have all of these issues praise God I don't think anybody got drunk at communion this month, right? That's a good thing, right? We're not going to start that, by the way, right? Uh, we don't have rampant immorality in the church, praise God. We don't have divisions and factions, and we have had them. We don't have them today, praise God. But we do have some of these things that we share in common with the church at Corinth. And, and it's awfully easy to allow, just like they did, the culture's values and assumptions into the life of the body of Christ, just like they did, right? And so what we're, what we're going to be doing is looking at the church in Corinth and holding it up as a mirror to ourselves. And seeing how uh, we might address some of the cultural hangovers that we bring in to our church and addressing them, right? Uh, and we got just a little time to look at the text here before we wrap up. So if you got your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the Lord, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ancient letter writers always started off their letters by identifying themselves and I think that's a really helpful feature 
You know, it was not a day where you sent stuff in an envelope where you could have a return address and know who it's from. And you didn't want to have to read all the way through to find out this was a sales pitch, right? Uh, so they put it at the top. They say, this is who's sending you this letter. So you can know. And he says, he says, look, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why does he identify himself that way? Because he is saying, look, this is an authoritative letter that I'm sending to you all. I'm not simply the founding pastor. I am an apostle. And I'm not someone who has advanced up through the religious ranks. You know, like you start off as like, you know, janitor. And then you work up to, you know, Sunday school teacher and small group leader. And then you become pastor. And then you become, you know, like bishop. And then eventually, you know, something else. And then apostle, right? That's not how Paul became an apostle. Paul says, I became an apostle because I was called by the will of God to be an apostle. And Sosthenes, the guy that he includes there in the greeting, is probably the fellow who carried the letter from Corinth to Paul at Ephesus, and then the guy that Paul is sending his letter back with, our brother Sosthenes. It may, in fact, be a guy that Paul personally led to Christ. Uh, and even in the beginning here, Paul is beginning to confront some of the issues at Corinth. It's possible, I think, given the factionalism of the church that's dividing everybody from one another, that there's already been a split. And if not, it's likely they're on the verge of one. But Paul addresses the church this way. Look at it. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Singular noun because there is only one body of christ and everyone who is there at corinth all of them belong to it and he says look you're also those sanctified in christ jesus and i think he says that as a way of reminding them that they are to be the sanctified of christ jesus that they are to have lives as they respond to the gospel marked out by holiness and that they're called to be saints together with everyone in every place who calls on the name of the lord jesus christ both their lord and ours and i think that there is it's a reminder a subtle one sure but a reminder nonetheless that there is no higher and lower in the kingdom of god in corinth they were all preoccupied with who is up and who is down and who is who is on top this week and who is somebody worth following, and I'm following a better guy than you're following. And Paul is reminding everybody that it's not like, you know, maybe at Thanksgiving at your house they have like the adult table and the kid's table, right? And it's always this rite of passage as you become an adult and recognized as a mature person that you get to move up to the big table, right? In the body of Christ, there is no big person's table. We all sit at the same table, eating with the same Lord, having fellowship with one another as equals, right? And so in the church, 
you know, as Rick often reminds us, how many ministers do we have? A lot of people would mistakenly say one at the moment. And we're looking to hire a second one. No. We're all ministers of the gospel of Christ. And we all are gifted. And we all stand before God at the same level. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And, and, and he says, everybody, in every place. So in other words, you might, you might, just in case you're confused, you know, think that, well, I'm a Corinthian Christian. Or I'm a, Corinthian, I'm a, I'm a Christian from Chicago. Or I'm a Christian from Peoria. Or I'm a Christian from, you know, Chillicothe versus Lakin. You know, and well, I'm from Lake and not Sparland. You know, I mean, you can get that hierarchy going, right? He says, all of us from every place, all call upon the name of the one Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's significant. Why does he put a prayer of blessing on them that they would have grace because they are profound sinners and they deeply need it. And when you recognize that you are a sinner, you understand that you need grace too, right? And he says, and peace. Why do they need peace? Because they're tearing each other apart. He says that peace would reign and that grace would come to cover over the sin that is present in the church. And he says, from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. A church filled with peace, I mean, a church filled with conflict needs peace. A church filled with sin needs grace. And so Paul says, he asks that God the Father will send through the Son both grace and peace to the church. Now, there's an important topic I want to address before we close out our time together, and 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 I, this, I hope this comes, comes out the, the way I want you to, to hear it. Uh, and if you want to know what the theme verse of 1 Corinthians is, you can write this down. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All through this book, Paul, what he does is he continually pulls them back and pulls us back to the gospel as both the basis for the obedience and the means also through which we are empowered to obey. In other words, he says, you know, for example, stop getting drunk at communion. Why? Because of the gospel. The gospel is the thing which changes your life. And it, it not only changes you, it empowers that change taking place. I want to show, I want to do something that I don't normally do, which is show you all a little video uh, to illustrate this point a little further, okay? Uh, this is Bob Newhart. He is showing off his very best counseling technique. And some of you who do counseling from time to time will want to watch this closely because, you know, this is... This is worth seeing. You guys, do we have that video ready? Okay.
All right. Now, how many of you would like to go see that counselor? <laughs> All right. Um, that video contains a nugget of truth, which makes it funny, right? But sometimes we really do, because sometimes the fact is we really do need somebody not to pat our hand and listen to us and whatever, but to give us a good kick in the pants and tell us, look, you need to knock it off, right? Instead of just trying to be oh so understanding. Sometimes we need to be told to grow up and knock it off already. But, and this is the point, sometimes it isn't so easy to just stop it, is it? Sometimes it's not so simple to just say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stop sinning in this area or that one. I'm going to, I'm going to just through my self-discipline, through my willpower, uh, through my own effort, I'm going to triumph over my sin. Right? I can't do that. If I could do that, I don't need Jesus and I don't need the gospel, Right? I can't simply just go, I'm just going to gut it out. I'm just going to, with grim determination and teeth gritted, I'm just going to say, well, I'm going to just stop. In fact, if you try that, what you'll find is that it doesn't work. Because you can't. Because any more than a, a leopard can change its spots, a sinner can't change what he or she is. And the fact is, is that we need Jesus desperately to be saved and to be sanctified and to be, and to be finally glorified because there is no other way to be transformed into anything other than what we are, which is sinners who are righteously condemned to hell apart from the gospel. And the thing is, is that we need the gospel not just to justify us, we need the gospel to sanctify us too. And a lot of people, as they read through the scriptures, and maybe you're one of these, as you read through a book like 1 Corinthians, or you read through the Old Testament law, or you read through Galatians, or you read through other areas where it talks about sin, and you, you read that, and what you hear is God yelling at you, Stop it! And that's not what the Scripture is saying. What the Scripture is saying is this. And what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians is this. That though we are unable to stop it through the gospel, we are not only delivered from it and justified, but we are progressively delivered from it as we are sanctified. And so every place that Paul gives moral instruction in 1 Corinthians, remember the theme verse? I resolved not to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Paul says. He always takes the Corinthian church and always takes us. Whatever the issue is, he brings it back to the gospel and he says, here is not only the motivation, but here is the means by which your life is transformed. It's the gospel. It's the thing, you know, we don't, we don't graduate from the gospel. And so sometimes people hear the gospel explained and they hear it shared and they go, yeah, that's the stuff for baby Christians. 
That's the stuff that, you know, that's, that's, that's the milk stuff. You know what? It's the meat stuff, too. It's the good steak that will chew, you can chew on the rest of your life. That the gospel is not simply the means by which we are saved from hell. It's also the means by which we are saved from sin in the here and now. And, and I say that and I show you that video because I think that a lot of you have a misunderstanding of what the scripture does. That it just yells at us to stop sinning. But the reality of it is, is that it doesn't. It invites us to stop sinning. It invites us and encourages us and prods us to be free from sin by the power of the gospel. And we're going to go through 1 Corinthians. And then when we're done with that, we're going to go through 2 Corinthians. And if you've studied those books before, you know that there's a lot of sin that gets dealt with in these books. But what I don't want you to hear as I'm going through here and as I'm making application is me beating on you or trying to lay guilt on you and tell you just to stop it. Because I know that you can't. Because you're sinners just like me. And I can't stop it either. But through the gospel, we all can experience growth and change and transformation. Amen? So, next week, we're going to plow even deeper into this book. And we're going to see how the gospel works itself out life. Let's pray.